Welcome to the Fair Forest Podcast. Here you can find sermon, Bible study, and devotional audio from Fair Forest Church of God in Spartanburg, South Carolina, a place of hope, healing, and restoration. It is our prayer that this content introduces you to Jesus and deepens your relationship with him. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3. I'll read this and I'll let you sit down. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, then I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Last week we started talking about love and we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that last verse. And Paul, I'm gonna walk back into chapter 12 a little bit this morning because I, I do wanna teach some stuff up front, but then I want to really, I'll transition to preaching this text by the end of it. I know I will because I get excited. Even last night reading back through my notes, I just get excited about what I believe is implied here in the text. But I, I wanna show you some things because I believe 1 Corinthians 13, being the love chapter is a misunderstood chapter because the idea of love is a misunderstood idea. There might be no greater misunderstood word or idea than love in our culture and in our churches. And I talked last week, I had mentioned to you that, that love is not just an action, love is a position. Love is the place where the actions emerge from, and, and that's what Paul is getting at here. And I want to lead into this sermon. I, I was thinking uh, several years ago, uh, and I want to tell you a story about two different hugs. The first one happened just a few years ago. The other one happened about a century and a half ago. Uh, I worked at a company in Greenville for about six years, and we uh, had a good relationship, but, but I, I got an opportunity to go somewhere else to make a little bit more money, and so I left. And, and so, you know, I built relationships. If you're there six, seven years, you're with people every single day. You build relationships, you get to know people. And so I had built these relationships. It was sad to leave, but, but I knew that I was doing, I believe what God wanted me to do. I prayed through the decision, and that might have been one of the first decisions I'd ever really prayed through, to be honest with you, at that time of my life. And so uh, it was wonderful. And so a couple of years after I had left the company, they called me back. And they said, hey, this position has come back open and we wanna offer you more money, a better situation and more freedom. And I said, that sounds like God. And so I'll take it. And uh, so I did. And so I, I transitioned after a couple of years back to that same company. Now, because I knew these people so well and because we had built relationships during my first stint with the company, when I came back, man, there was this reunion atmosphere. Now, I, if you're around me very much, I do like to cut up, I like to joke, and I, that's just part of who I am. And so we had built these very friendly relationships. And, and so, when, man, we would see each other, we would shake hands, high five, we'd, we'd hug. You know, it was before fist bumping was a thing in America, so we didn't do that. But, but we did all, and it was just really wonderful. And, but a few days after I'd come back, I was walking into an elevator lobby on the first floor of that building, and there are two directions that you could come into that elevator lobby from. And so a lady that I had known had worked with some in my previous uh, time at the company was walking the other way. I had not seen her yet uh, since I'd been back. And so she saw me and she, she went, hey, you're back. Now, I'm Pentecostal. And I always assume that people want a hug. It's just how I was raised. If somebody opens their arms, 
That's exactly why they're open in their arms. So I was like, yes, it's been a while. And so being polite and, and an upstanding Christian gentleman, I, I went to side hug her in that elevator lobby. And it was one of the lowest social IQ moments of my life. About two inches away from actually making contact with her, I realized that there was no reciprocation, that she didn't want to hug me at all. But I was too far. Point of no return. And so I eased in and I just tapped her shoulder lightly and she gave me just an obligatory tap on my side and we separated like we were lepers. Technically, we hugged. Actually, what we did was create the most awkward moment in the history of that elevator lobby. But there's another story that I'd read years ago in the 1800s as black diphtheria raged through Europe. Queen Victoria had a daughter named Alice and she was known as Princess Alice and Princess Alice had sons and one of her young sons, three, four years old, if I understand, if I remember correctly, contracted that plague, black diphtheria, highly contagious. When he started to show symptoms, they immediately quarantined him. They put him inside a room where only doctors and nurses could go. The family was worried about the young boy, didn't know what to do. They didn't know what they were going to do. They were afraid they'd lose him, and they, they hovered around, and they prayed for him, and, and Princess Alice would stand just outside the door of that quarantine area, not breaking the quarantine, but desperate to be close to her boy. And four or five days into the quarantine, she heard this small voice ask the nurse, why doesn't my mother kiss me anymore? In that moment, Princess Alice's heart was melted. She blew through the quarantine restrictions. She rushed in and she took her son into her arms. She embraced him and she squeezed him and she held him and she fell upon his face with kiss after kiss as she held him. And it would turn out to be the kiss of death for Princess Alice. She would contract black diphtheria and she would die just a few days later. All of it because she had to hold her son. The first story was technically a hug. But it's completely different than the second story. See, because action is not the measure of what we do. Motivation is the measure of what we do. Action is not the measure of what we do, Paul is going to tell us in this text. Very, very clearly, Paul is going to challenge our notions that actions are enough. Paul says actions are not enough. The heart is what matters. David could work in the fields, but he was ready to be a warrior because the heart is what matters. Paul was murdering and killing Christians, but God was going to make him the greatest apostle in the history of the world because God knew if he could get to his heart. If that's what could be changed, then suddenly everything could change. Actions are not the greatest measurement of what we're doing. And, and so I want you to look back in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. I want to set the context here. If you start in verse 4, and we'll read down through verse 11. Paul says this, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. 
For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Skip down to verse 27. Now you say I Say, I am. Say, I am the body of Christ. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. This is what leads us up to the chapter about love. Paul leads us by saying this is who the church is at the practical level. This is not about hyper-spirituality, and it's not about super-spirituality. I get sick of the idea that Pentecostals are super-spiritual, hyper-spiritual, over-spiritual. We're not. We're just biblical Christians. Because every gift of the Spirit is supposed to be active in the body of Christ if the body of Christ is to become what the body of Christ is supposed to become. Now hear me, we haven't done a great job either because we've talked about tongues like it's the only gift in the world when he says administration and hospitality have as much to do with the building up of the body of Christ as tongues ever did. We have laid a weight on speaking in tongues when Paul himself in these chapters says that prophecy is the actual greatest gift So we haven't really done the greatest job on the other side of the equation. But I want you to hear me. Paul's not saying we need to get super spiritual, guys. Listen, he already had a church that was super spiritual. The Corinthian church was deeply spiritual. I was talking with dad last night. We were chatting about the text. And, and, you know, in the conversation, it sort of emerged that this was more like a charismatic community than a Pentecostal community that were functioning in every gift almost without check or order. And so Paul says, You're doing the things that you should do, but you're not doing them for the right reasons. These are the parts where the water gets up over your knees and your hips, okay? So I just need you to walk with me. I'll get happy again at the end, but we need about 10 minutes to walk through this if we're going to understand what he's actually saying. Paul doesn't say that the church's challenge is a lack of active gifts of the Spirit being practiced. He says that the challenge of the church is a lack of love. And this is why he writes chapter 13. There's a more excellent way to do this. There's a more excellent way to speak in tongues. There's a more excellent way to prophesy. There's a more excellent way to administrate. There's a more excellent way to feed people. There's a more excellent way to show hospitality. There's a more excellent way to perform miracles. There's a more excellent way to bring healing. There's a more excellent way. And that way is the way of agape, love, the kind of love that Christ showed the world. And if you're not functioning with that kind of love, we see in our text very clearly that Paul says, it's not going to go well for you. You see this? Look at what he says. I want to give you this as raw as I can. In 1 Corinthians 13, 1, 2, and 3, he says this. What you say, what you know, and what you do is pointless, meaningless, and worthless without love. Paul woke up on the wrong side of the bed. 
What you say, what you know, and what you do is pointless, worthless, and meaningless if you're not doing it in love. What does it mean to do it in love? It means to adopt the same position of Christ who did not consider himself in a way to make himself equal with God, but took on the form of a servant even though he had every divine quality still in him. Jesus, in Philippians chapter two, Paul will say, became something that no one would have expected. He was a king who became a servant. It wasn't that he didn't have authority. It wasn't that he didn't have ability. It was that he chose to become a servant. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark chapter 10 tells us this is the beauty of who Jesus is. This is the beauty of what we're supposed to be. And Paul says, if this is not your mindset, then you can babble in tongues all day long and it won't be profitable a bit. You can speak prophecies. You can have deep insight and wisdom. I'm gonna walk through all three of these, so I'm just giving you a preview. He said, you can, you can give your body over to be a martyr, and if it's not out of a spirit of love, if the position of your life is not love, then the action of your life is worthless. I know none of y'all have, but I'll admit it, I have. Since I've been a Christian, there are a lot of things that I've done without love in my life. And I've tried to slap a smile on my face and treat somebody that I don't like in a way that I need to treat them and do something I don't want to do just because I'm afraid of the guilt that's going to come on me if I don't do it. I don't be as raw and real as you as I can. I mean, I don't do everything out of love. I don't believe that this is Paul telling us that if we fail, we're done for. I believe this is Paul telling us if we're not aware of this, then we'll never grow. You ever fold the laundry through clenched teeth because nobody in the house comes to help you? Y'all looking for a polished preacher, you didn't find him. You found a guy doing laundry. I feel guilty every time I make Karsten fold the laundry because I feel like I should be helping her. But then I remember all those years that she didn't help me at all. (laughs) I love you, sweetheart. So Paul makes... (laughs) Paul makes... Oh, boy, that wasn't in the notes. Paul makes three conflict statements here. Three conflict statements. First of all, in in verse one, he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Paul says, without love, our tongues are pointless. He speaks to a spirit-filled church who actively practices speaking in other tongues. And he is in no way discounting the role or the importance of tongues Chapters 12 and 14 make this very clear. Paul is not saying don't speak in tongues. He's saying that when you speak in tongues, there needs to be something behind it that actually cares about more than just speaking in tongues. See, if you're just praying in tongues you think it's what you're supposed to do or because you get a little tingle, then you're doing it wrong. We speak in tongues as a sign for both believers and unbelievers to alert them to the fact that both the Spirit of God is present and maybe there's an interpretation that somebody needs to hear from the message that's given in a worship service. We pray in tongues because we want to be edified in Christ. The word edify comes from the root word which has the same meaning as edifice, which means it builds something inside of us. We're building a structure inside of us that houses the presence and power of the Holy Spirit when we pray in tongues. This is why I believe very firmly that it's a gift that's available to everyone, even though I believe tongues for interpretation is a gift that's probably limited to those that God gives it to. 
Theologically, I believe there are different kinds of tongues. I actually spoken with the backs about this when I first came. We had talked when I was talking through the book of Acts. And, and so the, the idea is that there are different expressions of tongues. Paul here is talking about tongues for interpretation, but I believe tongues as a prayer language is available to every single person in this room. I don't mean you're going to run the aisles and scream like a banshee and you know, hit the altar really hard. It just means that sometimes in your car, in your prayer closet, you're going to find out that the Holy Spirit starts to speak through you, intercedes on your behalf because you don't know what to pray while you're praying. Paul says tongues are incredibly important. But the statement that he makes is that there has to be something behind the tongues that we speak. The two statements, that he, the two expressions he uses, he says, when your tongues have no love, then you are an echoing bronze or a clanging cymbal. These two expressions find their root in some cultural things. I'll explain them quickly so you understand the text. The echoing bronze probably comes from uh, stages where actors would put on plays in antiquity. So essentially what, they are, what he's talking about are these megaphone-looking devices made out of brass or bronze that were put at the corners of stages so that when someone spoke, it would resonate and echo and go beyond the reach of their own voice. So they would speak and the people in the back would be able to hear them. We have public address systems for this now. But what Paul is saying, it seems, is he's bringing up this image of an actor. And he says, when you speak in tongues without love in your heart to the ones that you're speaking around, then you're not speaking authentically out of where you are. You're putting on a role. You're playing a part that you don't actually own. You're speaking from a place that's not your own identity because you're just an actor. Tongues without love makes you into someone who is inauthentic. He says the clanging cymbals, and this is almost certainly from some of the pagan worship practices and feasts that the Corinthians themselves would have participated in prior to coming to Christ. Just noise, just mindless abject noise. And, and Paul says, he's clear, he says, if your words, words of either human origin or divine, are not spoken from a place of service or long-suffering love, they are no more authentic than the words actors quote on stages, and they're no more valuable than the pagan practices that you left behind when you came to know Jesus. Too many people get caught up in faking a part in the body of Christ. And too many people get caught up in making a lot of noise without creating anything new. If your tongues make somebody guilty or brings condemnation on them, then maybe you need to check yourself before you check them. If you've wept over them in private and then you pray over them in public, that's probably the best sign that you actually love them. Too many folk in the church have a word. They just roam up to you, have no idea who you are, start speaking things into you. It's authentic sometimes. I'm not denying that God can do that. What I'm saying though, what I believe the New Testament points to is the fact that generally that takes place in the context of a community, not in the context of strangers. We cannot allow ourselves to fall in love with our own voice, but we must be willing to love those who God allows us the privilege of speaking into and speaking over. That's first. Second, he says this, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Look what Paul does here. He says this. So first of all, he said, without love, our tongues are pointless, and without love, our faith and knowledge is powerless. Without love, our faith and knowledge is powerless. 
What's on the table for Paul are three things that are considered incredibly valuable in the church. Prophetic power, the understanding of divine mysteries, and faith that results in tangible displays of changed circumstances. Paul says these things. This is harder for us because we think, and so can I just tell you, can I just give you a little inside baseball and this is what I have been pondering, I still don't have the answer to uh, in, in my own mind. Why does God allow the Spirit to give these people these gifts if they're not functioning in love? And yet from what Paul says here and what the Corinthian church seems to exhibit and exemplify, God does allow us to function in certain spiritual gifts without there being love behind it. The best answer I can come up with is this, that the more we read texts like this, the more it causes us to check our own motivations before we exercise the gifts of the Spirit that God has given to us. Some of y'all are so churchy, you think that, man, unless they're holy, they'd never speak in tongues except for the whole book of 1 Corinthians, except for the Bible. I've known plenty of people that spoke in tongues that I didn't think even knew who Jesus was. Couldn't spell Holy Spirit, much less. He says prophetic power, understanding divine mysteries, and faith resulting in displays of changed circumstances. Paul is digging up roots here. He's saying at the heart of this, without agape love, these powerful and helpful gifts cease to be about the good of the body of Christ and instead become focused on the ego and pride of the one speaking. Do you see that? See, love presents an outward motion. When you love someone, you do things for them that you wouldn't do if you didn't love them. I slept all night with my son's vomit on my shoulder when he was little, not last night. He wouldn't sleep, he was sick. Nisha had done far more work than I ever did. So it was my turn, which that's like a you know, 90%, 10% split, just to be fair. But he threw up on my shoulder, and at 3.30 in the morning, I was so tired, and he was so tired, that we got into a chair after he had you know, gotten that all over me, and I reached my head as far away from that shoulder as I could, and I held him in my lap, and we both slept for about two hours because we were beat. Can I tell you something? I don't know that I love all y'all that much. <laughs> Sometimes the things that we do, we're doing them so people see us instead of doing them so that other people are blessed, edified, and nurtured. This is not the first time we've heard this kind of text. If you look in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says something terrifying at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. If you look in verses 21, 22, and 23, Jesus says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Look at this, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Hold that expression out for just a second. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, here, here's the response. On that day, many are gonna say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And then Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He says, what you did wasn't the issue. Jesus doesn't say, I'll look at them and say you're liars because you didn't really do all that stuff. Jesus is not going to call them liars. He's going to call them strangers. Because the will of the Father is not to do these things. The will of the Father is to love one another as Christ has loved you. 
That's why if you prophesy and it's true, it's worthless if it's not in love. That's why if you have faith that moves mountains and changes situations, it's worthless if it's not done in love because you're doing it for yourself and not for the body. You're not doing it for the good of the world. You're not doing it for the good of those who are broken. You're doing it so that you are seen instead of Jesus being seen. Paul says that never equals profit. Hmm. I move on. So without love, our words, our, our, our tongues are pointless. And without love, our faith and knowledge is powerless. And without love, our sacrifice is profitless. Paul says you can give. Look in verse 3. He says, you can give everything that you have. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, then I gain nothing. He directly assaults this notion that if I just give, it doesn't matter what I care about. If I just give, God has to give back to me. Can I tell you something? There is real beauty in the idea that God has built into the world the idea of sowing and reaping. That which you sow, you shall also reap. But can I tell you, Jesus is very clear that if you sow one kind of thing, you'll reap that kind of thing too. You sow to the flesh, you'll reap under the flesh. You sow to the spirit, you'll reap under the spirit. This is the beauty of what Jesus says. He says that the soil that you create will be conditioned either by love or something other than love. Soil that is conditioned by love is fertile soil. And when you put seed into that, you get an exponential harvest, Matthew 13 tells us. But everything else, he says, you can give until you don't have anything left, including your own health and your life. And if you're doing it without love, then it will never produce the harvest that you keep wanting it to produce. Too many times we give into God's kingdom. We give time, we give money, we give effort, we give energy, we give attention, and we think we're putting God in our debt. You have to give to me. I gave to you. And God says, your heart is dark. You'll get what you deserve. Paul says, just giving isn't the issue. It's the heart behind the giving that makes the gift beautiful. I think it's in, it's in Titus. He says, unto the pure, all things are pure. That's a crazy verse that I've never been able to get away from throughout my entire Christianity, that he would say to this young man, he says, while you're leading, if your heart is pure, then everything that you do and try to do will be purified by the purity of your heart, by what Christ has done in you. If you give even foolishly, can I tell you something to that guy that wants money and you think he just wants drugs or alcohol? If you give to him because your heart has been moved and you have prayed through that moment, it doesn't matter what he gets with it, you have done what you're supposed to do. Stop acting like you have to be the police for the entire world. You follow what God has put in your heart as you have received his love, you give his love. Sometimes that means you don't give anything. You walk him somewhere where he can get some food or you take him somewhere where he can get some shelter. It, it looks different every time. What I'm telling you is this. You don't put God in your debt by giving something or not giving something. You follow the will of God when you allow his love to flood your soul. But they offended me. I don't care. But they're hateful. Okay. But those aren't the songs I like. Talk to Isaiah. <laughs> See, he says it doesn't matter just what you give. I suffered through this and I suffered through, well, okay. But what was inside? Because if you want it to profit you something, if you want the benefit of what you're doing, the energy that you're expending, the money that you're giving, the time that you're sharing, if you truly want the benefit of that, then it matters the position that you're coming from. Paul says. So, now, I got about 10 minutes to do this, and that, that's fine, I can do this. Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. <laughs> See, what I want to show you here is this. 
I don't think Paul is just saying these things to make us feel bad because sometimes we don't love. I think Paul is trying to get us to understand what's on the other side of these statements as well. See, because there's a mirror image of these statements that actually provides a ton of hope. So, I'll say this. Paul says, it's worthless, it's pointless, it's powerless, but the presence of love is the antidote to the toxicity that is created by actions without proper motivations. I'm gonna say it one more time. The presence of love is the antidote to the toxicity that is created by actions without proper motivations. So I want you to so look at what Paul is actually saying. He says, without love, my words are useful for nothing, which means that our words are supposed to be remarkably useful. He says that without love, my spiritual insight and my faith is nothing, which means our insights and our faith are supposed to be incredibly valuable. He says that without love, my tangible sacrifices gain me nothing, which means our sacrifices are supposed, to be, are supposed to put us in positions to receive more than we might think we receive. See, Paul's not saying, I hate you all. He's saying, if you'll walk the pathway of love, then everything that you do will be exponentially increased in its power, in its effect, in its results, in what it's supposed to do. You will find your purpose, you will find your fulfillment, you will find your satisfaction, not because it's easy, but because it's right. See, I, I think we read this and we think, oh gosh, the struggles we have with this because I, I don't know if I have love or not and I'm speaking in tongues, I don't know if I love or not, I'm trying to act by faith, I don't know if I have love or not and I'm trying to give these things to the church or to the people that I know and, and, and Paul is not saying feel guilty, Paul's saying know that you are loved and then let that love be extended. I want to go to one more text and, and this is how I'm going to lock this thing down. Ephesians chapter 4 is almost a companion text to this section of 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. In Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16, at the very beginning of this text, you're gonna recognize this expression, and I wanna talk directly to this expression. Paul says this to this church. In verse 15, Ephesians 4, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly and it makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That, that first expression, rather speaking the truth in love. I want you to say that. Say speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. Say the word in. You're awful hard to love right now. <laughs> See, I think we've got a grammatical issue that we have to deal with. I don't think they teach grammar anymore, which means we have a society that's going to be very bizarre in the next 20 years. Of course, it's going to just revert back to hieroglyphics anyway with emojis and memes, so it'll be okay, I suppose. But <laughs> especially maybe in the South, when we hear the expression, Speaking the truth in love, what we hear is speaking the truth with love. Which means this, I'm going to lay into you, but I'm going to do it in a way that sounds like sugar coming out of my mouth. <laughs> Bless your heart. 
doesn't say that the building up of the body of Christ takes place when we speak the truth real soft and real kind and almost confusing people so when we walk away, they don't know if we just cuss them out or we bless them to death. I'm, they don't know the difference because of the way that we present it, but that's not what Paul is actually saying. He doesn't say speaking the truth with love. He says speaking the truth in love. You might be shocked to find this out, but the Greek word for in is actually the word in in Greek, it's spelled E-N instead of I-N. And it literally means, the Greek word in is a preposition. It literally means, uh, it speaks of a fixed place, position, or idea. See, what Paul is saying, I want you to hear me. You gotta get this, because this bubbles up in my soul. I love this. It was revolutionary studying through Ephesians a few years ago and realizing that I've been reading this wrong most of my life. He says this, he says that, you and I are going to be tempted to tell the truth and try to soften the blow. But what Paul says actually builds the church is when the only truth we speak is a truth that emerges out of a place of love. Let me explain it this way. I should have brought the wishing well in here from the hallway. If you have a well and you go to that well and you Roll down the crank and you dip the bucket. This is like a well in the Andrew Griffith show, not wells like we have now with pumps. This is old well, okay? Not new well. And you dip out of that well, that water source, what you pour out came out of that well. What Paul is saying is that love is a place that you go to to dip out a different kind of truth than the truth that you would find, see, or hear everywhere else. You're going to hear me by the end of this. When God speaks the truth over your life and over my life, God is not just reporting current events or facts. God is speaking the things that we can become in his presence. See, he sees truth differently than you and I because he doesn't see truth as a fixed position. He sees love as a fixed position. Truth can be changed when it has come out of the well of love. Truth doesn't have to be what you are right now because truth that's dipped out of the well of love speaks your future before you've seen your future. God help us, you're about to get something right now. God is telling you something. He's saying that where you are in this moment might be true about this moment, but it might not have to be true about your next moment because when God speaks life and creation and freedom and liberty and joy over your life, he changes your moment by changing the facts of your future. Mm, give him a hand clap of praise. This is what he does. Speaking the truth in love. There's a truth that emerges out of the universe of love that is different than the truths that emerge out of every other universe because this truth is redemptive and this truth is creative and this truth speaks life and joy into things. One of my wife's favorite scripture verses comes from Romans chapter 4 verse 17. Might be her very favorite. Abraham knows God in this way. He says he is the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence those things that do not exist. Look at your life right now. What doesn't exist in this moment? What hope doesn't exist because of what you've lost? What freedom doesn't exist because of what you're addicted to? What joy doesn't exist because of what's depressing you? What unity doesn't exist because of the difficulties that you have experienced with other people? I want you to see those things and now, yes, those are true things right now, but as God speaks his truth 
over you. The facts of your current condition are not the facts of your life because God's truth changes everything. Do you hear me? In the beginning, there's two things I want to tell you. Donna, so you can, you can come. In the beginning, God's speaking to somebody. In the beginning, there was nothing except this weird stuff that the Holy Spirit hovered over. And the Bible says that God didn't have to see something to speak something. He didn't just name things. When God speaks, it's not a descriptive word, it's a creative word. Do you hear me? Say creative. God doesn't speak descriptive words over us. He speaks creative words over us because when he speaks to us out of his love, he's speaking something that will be because what God says is. The word of God. True, mighty, sharper than any two-edged sword. Divides things that need to be divided. Shapes things that need to be shaped. And when he said, let there be light, the indication is that there was no light until he said, let there be light. So when he says to you, let there be freedom, there doesn't have to be freedom there for there to become freedom there because what he says happens. And so in John 1, instead of John coming back to the manger, coming back to Bethlehem, coming back to the wise men or the shepherds or Mary and Joseph, John decides that he's going to talk about Jesus this way. See, he's not going to talk about his beginning in Bethlehem. He's going to talk about his beginning in the beginning. And he says that in the beginning was the, was the, was the, a word. A word of truth spoken out of love because God is love, 1 John chapter 4 tells us. Jesus is the greatest example of what truth in love actually looks like. He was the word in the beginning who spoke creation over the emptiness and the void. And in John chapter 1, he becomes the word that speaks life, beauty, truth, hope, forgiveness, and salvation over your life and over my life because he's the same God who spoke something out of nothing and he's still speaking something out of nothing. He's the God who brings life to the dead and calls those things that do not exist as if they already did. This is the beauty of what it means for truth to come out of love. So are you speaking to people like God is speaking to you? Are you speaking to your kids and your grandkids like God is speaking to you? Because God is not simply looking at who you are and reporting the facts to you. God is constantly saying, yes, you're here. He doesn't ignore where you are. He's just not intimidated by it because he knows where he can take you. And so he says, doesn't he say to Peter in John 21, this beautiful scene on the shoreline, he says to Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yeah, I love you. Okay, go feed my sheep. Without getting into the depths of that text, they're using different words for love. Jesus says, do you agape me? And Peter's saying, I phileo you. I, I love you like a brother. Jesus is saying, do you love me like God loves you? And he's saying, no. No, I don't. And what does Jesus say? You'll get there. Go feed my sheep. 
don't you dare let where you are define where you're going because what I've spoken over you is a deeper truth than the one that you see in your own life right now. Just because you rejected me a few nights ago, just because you tried to go back to work fishing on that boat, that doesn't mean that I haven't called you and it doesn't mean that I haven't chosen you. Hey, can I tell you something? Just because three days ago you did something stupid, just because you yelled at your spouse, just because you did something dumb at work, just because you made a huge mistake morally, that doesn't mean that what God spoke over you is not still valid. It just means you have to come back underneath the covering of his love so you receive the future word that God has for you instead of living in the present word that the world wants to adopt onto you. There is more beauty in speaking the truth in love than just speaking the truth because truth in love tells you where you can be, where you can go. Would you stand? I want to tell you one story and then I'll be done. Other things I wanted to say, but that's all right. In the book, The Ledge, a man named Jim Davidson recounts the story of going mountain climbing with a friend of his named Mike Price. They were climbing Mount Rainier, and on the way down from the summit, the two climbers fell about 80 feet through a snow bridge that gave way, and they landed in a pitch black glacial crevasse. Sheer ice walls rise up on either side about 80 feet to the surface. Tragically, Davidson's friend, Mike Price, died in the fall. And so laying just a few feet away from Davidson, standing on a two foot wide ledge with nothing but inky blackness except for just a little glimmer of light 80 feet above him, Davidson had to figure out what he was gonna do. Had no way out of the situation other than to try. And in the book, The Ledge, what Davidson continually points back to is how he was raised by his father. See, Davidson's father, I mean, remarkably from what I've read in the story, almost maybe to a fault, continually told Jim Davidson that he was capable of doing things that he'd never done before. And then not only that, but he put him in the situation where he had to do them. So at 12 years old, he was painting super steep pitched roofs, climbing you know, 50, 60, 70 feet up on top of ladders. And Davidson's mother was terrified. She would look at his father and say, he can't do that. And his father would look at him and say, yeah, he can. He's just got to do it. He's got to figure it out. Just don't quit. Just keep doing it. And he said all through his life, through his childhood and teenage years, his father continually told him, you can do this even though you've never done it. Just keep trying. You're better than what you know you are. Just keep moving forward. Don't stop working because you'll find out that you can get more accomplished in the end than you thought you were qualified for. And he said throughout the book, he said, as he stared at that sheer wall of ice, hear me now, having never ice climbed in his life, what echoed throughout his mind, the words of his father saying, Sure, you can do this because this is what's in front of you. And for five hours, bleeding, bruised, and broken, Jim Davidson clung, picked, and scrapped his way up an 80-foot sheer wall of ice out into the sunlight on the top of Mount Rainier. You know why? <laughs> because his father told him he could. <laughs> Oh, some of y'all, I, I, wish, I wish what was here could be there. Sometimes words fail. 
He didn't have to know how to do it. He just had to know that his dad told him he could. You don't have to know how you're going to get from here to there. You've just got to know that your dad told you you could. Some of you don't have to have all the step-by-step answers of how freedom's going to come into your life, how love and joy is going to come into your life, how your marriage is going to be healed, how you're going to deal with your kids. You just have to know that your father has spoken a truth over you that is greater than the truth that you're hearing right now in the moment because greater is the one that is in you than the one that is in the world. Greater is the one that's told you you can than the demons that come against you and tell you you can't. Greater is the voice of the father who speaks creation and life out of nothing than the entire world that says you're limited by everything that you've fallen apart at. Greater is he than everything else and his voice speaks over your life. Love is why he speaks like he speaks. I'm gonna end here and then I'll pray. Maybe, maybe not. First John chapter four. Verse seven, beloved, I'm going to read through verse 9. Beloved, let us love one another. Why? For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. If we ever want to hope to walk the more excellent way of love, If we ever want to shape the future with the truth that comes out of love, listen closely. You have to start first by opening yourself to receive his love because there is no other way to love than to receive his love for you. It sounds so basic and elementary, doesn't it? Some of you have been going to church for decades. Some of you have been going to church longer than I've been alive. I'm not making fun of you. I'm congratulating you. And you think, okay, we've read that verse. We know we're saved. But my question to you is not, are you saved? My question to you is this, do you love? Because the question is not, have I prayed a prayer in an altar when I was nine years old? The question is, am I functioning from a place of love? Because if I'm not, then it more than likely set. The Bible tells me if we're not operating out of a place of love, it's because we refuse to receive the love that God has given us. Because those who have received his love give that love back to others.